All right. Well, Matthew chapter 1, we'll read this in just a second. Um, but last week, we kind of made the journey into the New Testament. We looked at uh, the gospel according to John and who Jesus is. Um, it kind of goes big, a little bit bigger and more cosmic than just looking at uh, who he is kind of in the birth story. We looked at how John says that Jesus is the eternal, uh, pre-existent Son of God, that Jesus in the flesh is God dwelling among us. That is the, the glory of John chapter 1, that all this Jesus that we talk about, we wrestle with the claims of Christ, that he himself claimed to be God while he was here. And why did he come? And it was to raise us to new life. It was to be, as we read last week, the light of life. That we're all in spiritual darkness and we all, as a result, are spiritually dead. And we need to see Jesus have the light turned on. He is the light of the world. And when that happens, when we see who Jesus is, there is a life that is birthed in us. It's called the new birth in Scripture, being born again. We looked at that last week. That's who Jesus is and that's what he came to do. Um, But now we want to kind of look a little bit deeper uh, into the ministry of Jesus and who he was and what he said, what he taught um, through the Sermon on the Mount. But to do that, I want us to set up uh, the first four chapters of Matthew. We'll go to those real quick. I want you to kind of see how Matthew takes a different angle than we looked at last week with John. John just starts, in the beginning was the Word. It was Jesus. But Matthew goes to great pains to show us something about Jesus and from a different angle uh, than John. And I want us to look uh, briefly uh, for those first four chapters of what he does to set up uh, chapter 5, where we'll spend most of our time at the Sermon on the Mount, okay? That's where we're, that's where we're headed. So first, here's the big idea, uh, the first thing we learn about Jesus uh, through this text, through Matthew, is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew's going to great lengths. We looked at last week, but he's talking to a Jewish audience, and he's going, he says, Jesus is the King that all of the Old Testament has, has prophesied of. And so let's read this together in, in verse 1 of chapter 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So, you know, this is the genealogy that we're talking about. Usually in your Bible reading plan, you'll skip these chapters, right? All these long names, and we don't read it. But it's important setting up something that's so crucial that we might miss if we didn't spend nine months walking through the Old Testament together. Here's what it says. The genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. So remember the promise that, was made to King David way back when when we studied the Davidic covenant was that God promised King David that through David, through his line, there would be a king. And that king would reign, what? Forever. Eternally. So this is much, much bigger than just a physical man on a physical throne over physical kingdoms. There's a promise that God made to King David. says, I'm going to make a people, make a kingdom from you, from your line. There's going to be a king. He's going to come. And he's going to rule in a way that no other king's been able to rule. And this kingdom is going to be forever. When we start using words like forever, that has implications for us today. Like we're still in forever. (laughs) So this king is still on the throne today. So that's Jesus. He is from the son of David. He is from this line. He's going to be this king to fulfill all these promises we've been looking at. And then he says, the son of Abraham. Remember the promise of Abraham. That God says, I'm going to bless you so that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the way back in Genesis. That God promised that through Abraham, there's going to be a rescuer who will come. That through that person, through that seed, literally every people group on this world will experience 
a covenant relationship with God through, through this line, through this person. So Matthew is telling us that, oh, you know that one you've been waiting for literally for centuries? It's Jesus. He is the promised king who will reign forever, and he is the promised seed of Abraham that's going to bless the world. The world. So the question then becomes, it's really the question of the whole Bible, is how? If this Jesus, if he enters into the story and says that he is the promise, when all of the Old Testament is pointing to this moment, to this man, to this work. So let's read in verse 21 of Matthew 1. The words would also be on the screen. We, we read this around Christmas time a lot, but um, the angel... Um, talking to Joseph here, and says, She will bear a son, that's Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For this baby, this man, he will save his people from their sins. This long-awaited Davidic king and this long-awaited seed of Abraham, he's coming for a specific purpose, and it's to save his people from their sins. There's a purpose behind his coming. The Son of Man did not come to be served, we just said that, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I came, Jesus said, to seek and to save who? The lost. That's what Jesus came to do. We see that prophesied here even before his birth. All of this, notice this, this brings so much um, clarity in what we've been reading in the Old Testament. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He quotes one of the prophets that we've been looking at, but Isaiah here, it's in verse 23, behold, look at this. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Look at it unfold. Look at the story being told. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This was prophesied thousands of years before the coming of Christ. It's being fulfilled in, in the advent of Jesus. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Talked about that last week, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's God with skin on. He, he's pitched a tabernacle with us, literally pitched a tent in flesh among us, fully God, fully man, but for a specific purpose, to fulfill all of these prophecies about the one who would come to save from sin, and he said, I'm going to do it. We call Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And you see the birth narrative in chapter 2, and then we get to chapter 3, and we see John the baptizer that we talked about last week a little bit, that he kind of came on the scene as the last prophet before Jesus, and he says, Behold, look at him. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Takes away the sin of the world. So all throughout the Old Testament, listen, this is so important. All the prophets have been saying, hey, one is coming, right? One is coming to set you free from your sin. This God who is man, this prophet, this priest, this king, this line of David, this seed of Abraham, he's coming and he's going to fix all the Israel's broken. He's going to make a people for himself so that you can have a relationship. He's going to fix it. The rescuer is coming. And then John the Baptist says, hey, that guy, he's here. He's no longer coming. He's no longer in the future. He's present. He's in our midst. He is in front of you. Lift your eyes and look. Look at him. It's Jesus. And then he sees Jesus begins his earthly ministry, and he's baptized, and the Father even affirms that he's the Messiah. You remember what the voice of the Father is? The Holy Spirit descends, this trinity happening at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Look at him. He is 
the promises, all this Old Testament. And see, that's why nine months in the Old Testament is worth it. Because it's God's Word, and it's so important. But we can't understand the richness of what's happening here if we haven't seen this longing and the angst of the Old Testament unfold. So He is the promised Messiah, but He's going to do this specifically in a a way. Notice, Jesus is reversing the curse of sin. In Adam all die. We read that verse this morning. That in Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve failed and rebelled against God, there was a promise that there was going to be through a seed of a woman Somebody's going to come who's going to crush the head of the enemy. That's going to make atonement for sins. And all that curse of sin, this death that we all experience, physical death and spiritual death and an and a enmity with God, it's the curse of sin because of our sin. And Jesus says, I'm coming to reverse that. Everything that your sin has caused you, I'm coming to restore it in its entirety. That's what Jesus came to do. He's reversing the curse of sin. And listen, this is so important. As we've been reading, I pray you're doing that in the story reading plan. If you're not, jump in with us. As we look at the life of Jesus, listen, this is not just some stories about a man who lived 2,000 years ago. That Jesus' perfect life that we have been seeing on display as we've read the Gospels this last couple weeks. Listen, he's fulfilling everything that Israel has failed to do. He's living up. He, he is loving the Lord his God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength. And he is loving neighbor as self. Jesus is perfectly fulfilling everything that Israel could not obey. And there's an example of this in chapter 4 where Jesus is taken away by the Spirit of God into the, into the wilderness. And he's fasting and praying for 40 days and 40 nights. You remember that story? And it's almost this this beautiful parallel. You guys remember back in Exodus where God's people are in the wilderness and they turn back against the promises of God. And as a result, because of disbelief in God's promises, listen, they wandered around in the wilderness for how long? 40 years in the wilderness. Okay, now Jesus here is coming on display. One of the first things we see in Matthew that he introduces to us. And Jesus is coming on display and he's led up into a wilderness. And when he is tempted, he does not reject the promises of God, but instead he what? He claims the promises of God. He's quoting scriptures to his tempter, to Satan. And he's fulfilling everything that Israel had messed up. And in not just 40 years in the wilderness, but he was there for 40 days. And it's almost this parallel that, listen, Jesus is fulfilling everything that we've seen all of these prophets and all these priests and all of these kings and all of God's people we've almost gotten so frustrated with them because God keeps showing grace and mercy and they keep running don't they they're not the hope and Jesus says as as fully man but yet fully God I'm entering in to your world I'm putting flesh on but I'm going to live up to all the standard the righteous demands of the law I'm going to fulfill for you Instead of you, because you can't do this on uh, your own. And so then he says, okay, so how am I going to reverse this curse? He is the promised one who would do that. He's reversing everything that's been broken. But here's specifically what is kind of a theme throughout all of the messages of Jesus throughout the Gospels. is Jesus is creating a new humanity. That he calls out a people, Israel, and they're going to be a light to the nations. It was always meant to be that way, and now they have failed. He can't, comes and says, I'm, going to, I'm coming to my own, they're going to reject me, and I'm here to make a new people. What we would now understand to be the church, 
uh, but something even bigger than just local expressions of the church, even that is just a, a, a beacon of the kingdom of God. And so he's creating this new humanity, the kingdom of God. He's adding them in. And so we see in chapter 4, he calls his disciples, hey, come follow me. And what did he say? And I will make you what? Fishers of men. Meaning, follow me. I'm your king. I'm the one you've been waiting on. Live life the way I'm telling you to live as citizens of this new kingdom. And then you're going to live your life to say, as you're living as citizens of the kingdom, surrendering to the king. Well, guess what? You're going to invite more and more and more people into the kingdom. Be fishers of men. I'm creating this new humanity that's going to do something really uh, specific. So let Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Let's read it. Uh, I want to read this one together. It's kind of almost a summary statement that Matthew gives us of the life and ministry of Jesus. He says, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the what? Of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria. So you see this ministry of Jesus. He's healing and he's proclaiming the gospel, but a gospel specific, a gospel of the kingdom of God. And so I'm going to ask a couple questions real quick. We're going to move through this when we get to chapter 5. But we've got to understand what's happening to this if we don't, we're never going to understand his sermon in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, okay? What is the kingdom of God? So if he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, what do we mean when he says, what is the kingdom? What does this mean? Here's a real, we could chase a lot of this, but we won't for the sake of time. But here's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the redemptive rule and reign of God through Jesus. It's meaning, listen, every area of our lives surrendered to King Jesus. And it's not just the rule of God because God rules over all things everywhere, right? Every person is under the rule of God but this is a specific the kingdom of God is the redemptive rule meaning he's reversing the curse of sin he's making it new he's making it new and so the kingdom of God is saying what would life look like if every area of all of our thought lives of the what we love of what we do the way we approach relationships the way we approach money the way we approach every area of our lives what if that all was surrendered to Jesus like Jesus is king, we don't try to usurp his authority and live among our own selves, but we are united around Jesus, and we live every area of life and every sphere of life in this world among, uh, as Jesus would have us to live. That's the kingdom of God, and that's why he says, we just sang this song, but it's rooted right out of the prayer of Jesus that's in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your kingdom come, and your will be done where? On earth. As it is in heaven. So the kingdom of God is saying, I am restoring all of this. It's the fulfillment of all of this Old Testament. But it's every area of your life and every area of your person surrendered to me as king. You see, that's the nature of our sin. So, see, we don't like authority. We believe we make better kings than Jesus. And so we just say, no, no, I don't care what Jesus says. I'm living life for my comfort, for my approval, for what I want. And there's this... There's all this tension throughout the Bible. is this kingdom of darkness, this kingdom of the world. The Satan is, in part, ruling and reigning today under the authority of God. But there's this kingdom of the world, this kingdom of heaven. And we live in both. We live in the kingdom of the, of the city of man, as Augustine would say. But we also are citizens of the kingdom of God. That as we live in a kingdom of darkness, a world that just says, I'm going to live however I want to live, Jesus comes in and says, no, no, no. 
The kingdom of God is here. I'm going to show you what it means to walk with me and to be submitting to me as your king. That's what he's coming to do. So here's a statement that I want us to wrestle with. You're taking notes and you write this down. But, um, we just read that Jesus is going to be this Messiah that will save from sin, right? But I want to clarify what we mean by this. Jesus does not just save from sin's penalty. Meaning, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, that the wages of sin is death. Like you can't be right with God in your sin. And what we believe about, about Jesus is that he took our place on the cross. Amen? He, took our, he, he died our death. And so then you no longer have to live with the penalty of sin on your account, but that he pays for it and counts you as righteous. That's the gospel. It's the penalty of sin. But he's doing something so much more than that. It's not just that he saves from sin's penalty, but he also saves from sin's power and from sin's presence. So he saved you from your past sins. You're justified. But he also says this gospel is doing this work to conform you to the image of Jesus. And Romans would tell you, read the book of Romans, and it talks about this. You can't be justified by works of the law, but listen, that he's, he has said you are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. That's who you are. Because of what Christ has done for you, that is a reality for you. So you can't continue now from a moment where you claim to be justified and live however you want to live. If you know Jesus, he says, I'm saving you not just from sin's penalty. So Christianity is not about praying a prayer to get made right before God and then go to heaven one day when we die. Although that, all of that is, is right and beautiful. Surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. But it's saying his Lordship, his Lordship, the Kingship of Jesus, goes into every area of my life. He's not just saved me from sin's penalty. He has saved me from sin's power. You and I can overcome sin. You can. We can change. We have been dead to sin and made alive to righteousness. You can overcome sin. And what that also means is if we try to not overcome sin, we are living against who we are that's why if you're a christian and you're trying to not walk under the lordship of jesus you're going to be miserable because that's what christ has come to do and one day when the king comes again to set up the kingdom he'll save us from the presence of sin we'll no longer have to strive in in angst if you're really in christ he will finish what he's what he started in you it's the king it's what he's come to do that's a lot of theology but it it, it sets up so important what we're going to look at uh, here um, in, the, in this kingdom of God. So here's a statement that, that kind of summarizes what I, all I just said. As followers of Christ, we do not merely have a new label. We have a new loyalty. So following Jesus is not just saying, oh, I'm a Christian, and that's just a title that we attach to our lives. What it means to follow Jesus is now we have a new loyalty. We have a king who has set up this kingdom, and we live as citizens in this kingdom. And we have a loyalty to him. It's out of love and he transforms us to do that. But there is something to be said about the lordship of Jesus. He is the king. And he cares about every detail of the way we live our lives. Nothing is secondary to him. He cares about it all. So it's not just a new label that we have. We're not just Christians and Baptists and we come to Tri-Cities and this is what we do. No, no, no. It's much, much deeper than that. We have a new loyalty. Does your life characterize that? You're Christian by name only, or would your life say there's fruit, not perfection, but progress toward this new loyalty that I have in Jesus?
So, I won't read it for the sake of time, but Matthew chapter 5, we're getting into the Sermon on the Mount. He gathers the crowds, he's talking to his disciples, understanding that the crowds, the unbelievers are listening in. And he looks at his disciples and he says, you are the light of the world. We talked about last week that Jesus is the light of the world, right? But listen, when you come to know your king, it changes the way you live. And so now, you're little lights to represent who Jesus is in every area of life. You are the light of the world, and you're to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven, the King. We live our lives to show who He is in all of life, to worship Him. And He says, notice, this is corporate. This is corporate. This is not just a you. The you here is plural. You are a city on a hill. So us, together, for those of us here in this room that are in Christ, we together... United around Jesus, submitted to Jesus. He's transforming us in every area of life to be like Jesus and to live to advance this kingdom in this world today. You tracking with me? We're together so far? And we do that together. Together. Like your life connected to the local church is to say you, you, all of us together, we're a city set on a hill so that people can look at the way we love one another. They can look at the way that we make decisions. They can look at the way we give our lives and our agendas and our checkbooks and all of it and say, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. Like, That's who God is, and that's what he is doing in the world. Can they look at us and see that? It's a good question. You are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. And it's not to be hidden, but it has a purpose to show off the king as little lights pointing to Jesus, who is the light. So, all right. So with all that context, that's what Christ is doing. And that's not something new in the sense of God changed his mind. I want you to see that it is the fulfillment of everything that we've been looking at in the Old Testament. You see that? He is this one, and he's coming to do in us what Israel could not do on their own. It's a new kingdom people with a new heart with new desires, and with new behavior. And so now, here's what I want us to do. I want to summarize the Sermon on the Mount uh, with this one passage in in chapter 5, verse 17. Okay, chapter 5, verse 17. The heartbeat of the sermon. I think this, uh, if we were to ask Jesus, Jesus, what's your main point of the sermon that you're preaching in these two chapters, a summary of this, I believe one of, the, one of the main points would be this, okay? So everything before it, everything after it points to or flows from um, this concept. And so 17 through 20, but I just want to make some comments as we go uh, through these three verses, okay? So hang with me. All of that being said, notice what the king is saying to the citizens of this new kingdom. Verse 17, do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, we read the Old Testament. Some of it, let's just be honest, you'd go, I can't wait till we get in the New Testament. Who said that? Okay, like, all right, I can't wait. And, and what I would like for Jesus to do is like, yeah, yeah, you know, all that history, all that law, all of that, you know, judgment. We see God as judge. Yeah, yeah, just forget it. You know, none of that really matters. You don't, it doesn't matter how you live. The law doesn't matter anymore. Um, and God the Father was just cranky. You know, I'm just a God of love, which some people have actually said that, that the Old Testament God was cranky and Jesus is the God of love. Are you serious? Okay, um, but like some people have said that, that's what I want him to say in some ways because, I mean, we've 
read some really hard stuff in the Old Testament. We've wrestled through some really difficult things to read and difficult things to submit to. And Jesus looks at us and says, hey, listen, I didn't come to destroy that. I didn't come to say, hey, don't worry about that. No, no, no. I came to what? Fulfill it. So this picture of if there's a cup here, I've come to fill it up. Literally is what that word means, to fill up all that we've been reading throughout the Old Testament. So all the law, all of this, I did not come to abolish. It matters. God didn't change his mind. Jesus is fulfilling all these promises. He is. And he is doing that in his life. So we've already hit that a lot, so I won't say much here. But he fulfills the law in his perfect life. The sacrificial system that we read, remember? He is the Lamb of God who's going to make atonement for sin. That is who he is. That all the wisdom literatures, the Proverbs and the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, that in his life, he is wisdom. He's fulfilling all of those principles we learned about. He is the greater prophet who says, here's what the Lord says. He is the priest who goes in, in intercessions for us. He is the king who's reigning over us. Jesus is fulfilling all of the Old Testament. All of it. So let's keep reading. Verse 17, and then we'll get into 18. It says, For truly I say to you, Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota and not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Here's what, that iota and a dot is literally punctuation marks in the original languages. Jesus says, I take all of my words seriously. And this is a great, just a side note here, Jesus believes in the inerrancy of Scripture. He says, everything that you hold in your hands is from the mouth of God, and not even the punctuation is going to be passed away. Like, every part of it is going to be fulfilled because it's from God. He preserves His Word. He believes that this is from God Himself, that God speaks. And He takes all of His words seriously. Every bit of it. We can't just pick and choose what we like about God's Word. All of it. Let's keep reading verse 19. It says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So this is not saying you've got to work really hard and the ones who work really hard are the ones who make it into the kingdom. This is not about to, to be saved. It's saying if you are in the kingdom, Listen, the place you give God's word has everything to do with the vitality of the life that you have. So if you relax the commandments, guess what? You're going to be called the least in the kingdom. Your, your life's going to be miserable. You're not going to have the joy because you're not living as a citizen of the kingdom. But if you hold on to the word, and if you teach others to hold on to the word, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven because you're submitting to the king. That's the way you were created, the way you're created. And then last, let's read verse 20. This is the verse that will springboard uh, into the rest. Um, verse 20, it says, For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, real quick, the Pharisees, have we been reading those guys? They're kind of one of the main characters in the Gospels. But there's people that we kind of give them a bad rap today. But the people in those days would have seen the Pharisees as heroes. They were ones who knew the law. They were trying to obey the law. And they had all of the commands of God. I wrote down here through some study this week that they identified 613 commandments in the Old Testament. That's how many commands that are in the Old Testament. And they took all of those and they memorized them. And they took painstaking care to obey those commandments that were from God. But then the Pharisees did something that 
Jesus would rebuke them for. Not because they cared about the law, because that's a good thing. Here's what they did. In an effort to not break that, those commandments, here's what they did. They built fences, if you will, around those commandments. So they made up laws that God never said. But they said, hey, we're going to add this to the list just so that we never can get even close to breaking what God actually said. And Jesus is coming in and he'll indict them against that because um, you can't work your way to God. And that was putting an unnecessary burden and a yoke on people that they weren't supposed to have. But these were people, you got to get this, these were the spiritually elite. These are the guys you're going to listen to on podcast, okay? I mean, these are the guys that know God's word. Let's not see them as the enemies. They were the heroes of that day. And Jesus looks at people who who would have looked at the the Pharisees in that light and says, hey, if you're going to be in the kingdom of God, your righteousness has to exceed it. These guys that were known to be holy, that wore these big holy robes and had scripture literally written on their foreheads, he looked at everyday people and said, hey, Your righteousness has to be better than that. And if you're like me, even hearing this, like your heart sinks and goes, there's no way. Like, I I, I can't do that. So is Jesus literally, is he he saying this? If the Pharisees score a 94, you've got to score a 96. Like, is that the way it is? Like, you've got to just one-up them. I don't think that's what it means at all. So I want to read one more verse. At the end of Matthew, Matthew 23, the words will be up on the screen. But Jesus, at the end of coming up to the cross, he's going to give an indictment against these Pharisees, against these religious leaders uh, for this. And so I think this helps us understand what Jesus is saying to us here. Matthew 23, verse 25 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence you blind pharisee first clean notice the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Man, what an indictment from Jesus. So here's, I think, what he's saying. He's listening. You're doing all this right stuff on the outside. Everyone looks at you and says, that's the hero. But Jesus can see past their performance, and he says, I see your heart, and your heart is so far from me. You acknowledge me with your lips, but your heart is so far. You're doing everything right on the outside, and you're even going to stuff that I didn't even say. You're that much of a rule follower. But your heart is not worshiping me, and I don't care about what you do. I care about who you are. And if you clean up the inside, then the outside will change. He's not saying it doesn't matter how you live. It does matter how you live, but it all matters on how it starts. It's hypocrisy to look something on the outside but not have an inward transformation on the inside. And so here's what I think Jesus means back in chapter 5 when he says your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Exceeding righteousness is not about external righteousness. About doing more stuff. It's about inward holiness. But something that happens on the inside. Your righteousness must exceed it in that side. So it's not about having more righteousness. It's about having a different kind of righteousness. You tracking? Like it's a different kind of righteousness than the Pharisees had. It's not 
quantitatively more. It's qualitatively more. It's it's completely different. Completely different. So I stole this from a pastor I uh, was reading on this, but so good. Jesus is not demanding more righteous deeds by human effort. He's not saying do more by your own strength. He says, no, no. He's demanding a more righteous heart by divine grace. That's what Jesus is demanding here. Your righteousness must exceed that, meaning you've got to go beyond just trying to obey, and you've got to get transformed on the inside. That's what he says. So, uh, real quick, uh, I, I want to summarize with three statements the, in, the rest of this sermon. Because what Jesus does is he starts from there, and in verse 21 of chapter 5, he just begins, and he starts with this, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And he's using this, listen, as a diagnostic for the soul. To say, do you have this exceeding righteousness? Like, have you ever been transformed from the inside out? Don't just buy the lie of the Pharisees. Have you been changed? Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. Don't put on a show. So let me just do that really quick. I'm going to summarize it. I challenge you to go back this week and read chapters 5 through 7 and just really let the Spirit of God do His work uh, among us and in us here. Uh, But I just want to summarize what I believe He's saying um, in a few statements, okay? Here's the first one. Jesus changes us from external conformity to internal transformation. And changes from external conformity, just changing to be what you think you ought to be, to an internal transformation. And here's what he does. He, through the rest of this, for the rest of chapter 5, from 21 all the way to the end, he, he uses anger, he uses lust, he uses divorce, he uses oaths, retaliation and how we love our enemies to show us something he says this we won't read it for the sake of time but he goes you've heard it said do not kill right and so you can say hey i haven't killed anybody so check right i got that one i'm righteous jesus no no you've heard it said that but here's what i say to you i'm not doing away with that but i'm going to show you something that that law was meant to show us in the first place fulfilling it if you have anger toward a brother You've already committed murder in your heart. See, because if you're ever going to commit the act and behavior of murder, it begins with anger in your heart. And so Jesus says, I don't care that you've just obeyed the outside. Thanks for doing that. That's great. (laughs) But I'm much more concerned with something internal. So you're not as righteous as you think you are because you haven't shot somebody, but you're like, but I've been angry. And Jesus says that's just as bad. Because he cares about the heart. And then he says, hey, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And so that's what the church has said, right? You know, guard your purity, no sex outside of marriage, do it the way God designed it. Yes, that's right and good. Jesus is not doing away with that. But he says, he goes it deeper. He says, just because you haven't done that doesn't mean that you're holy. He says, if you've looked after the opposite sex to lust after them, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's about the heart. You can do all the external conformities, Pharisees, Tri-Cities, but your heart, your heart is what needs to be saved. He says, divorce, don't divorce. You hear that in Scripture all the time. We hear it in the church. It's it's true. But he takes a a step deeper and says, I don't care just that you haven't divorced, but be faithful to the one you have, like really faithful. Like that's what I care about. I'm changing the scorecard of what it means to be holy. Or 
oaths. Don't just says don't break an oath. He says, no, no, I want you to be honest in everything you say. Not just don't retaliate, but to actually have contentment and trust that God will, will avenge. You trust God. That's what he said. I'm taking it deeper to your heart level. And then lastly, he says, you've heard it said to love. That's right. But I say even love your enemies. Don't just love people who you get something from. Love people who are actually after your harm. Because that says something about your heart. But whether you actually have been transformed. And so he's, these are the check engine lights on our dashboard to say you're not as holy as you think you are. But he changes us from that. He wants us to be transformed at the anger level and the lust level and the faithfulness level. He doesn't want us to play games. All right, I've got to move on or we'll be here all day. <clears throat> Here's the second statement. Jesus changes us to live a generous life that flows from pure motives. I won't spend much time here, but this is chapter 6, 1 through 18. He basically says, you should give, you should pray, and you should fast. Right? We should do that. He doesn't even argue that. He's like, you just should do it. But he takes it deeper and says, I'm much more concerned. Not that you're just that you're giving or just that you're praying or just that you're fasting. I want to know why you're doing those things. Because he says in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness of chapter 6 before other people in order to be seen by them. So he's not saying don't practice your righteousness, and he's not saying don't even do it in front of other people. He's saying it matters why you do that. Why are you here? If you gave this morning, why? Why do you serve? Why do you go home to your spouse? The motivation matters to God. Not just that we do or don't do the external, but he cares what is fueling us. And why do you do what you do? Is it to make much of ourselves? By gaining the approval of other people. Is that why we do so much of what we do? It's a good question to ask all of our hearts. Here's another statement. Jesus changes us to live a life of freedom from the illusion of control that flows from a heart of trust. That's chapter 6, 25-34. Basically what he says is, don't be anxious about your life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to put on. Don't you know that God knows you need all that stuff? But instead, seek first the kingdom. Here's here's the point. Don't be anxious. When we worry, here's what we're saying. We don't trust that God's going to provide for us. That he has our best interest at heart. We don't believe it. And so we're saying, don't do that. Because kingdom people see the world differently. They don't worry. They trust. And so here's a really good statement. Life is never more freeing than when we realize that we aren't in control. And we submit to the authority of the one who is. That's the most freeing moment of your life when you say, I can't control my life. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to trust and have worship. And then the last thing, I won't even spend much time on here because I need to get to this end. But Jesus changes us to live a life of self-forgetfulness that sets us free from comparison and judgment of others. Basically, he says, do not judge, lest you be judged. So don't look at your brother and say, you need to take the little speck out of your eye when you got this big old log in your eye. Start on yourself before you judge other people. So he frees us from this self-comparison and says, no, no, I hate sin, and I hate my sin first. That's what kingdom people do. And I'm going to be committed to you to see you overcome sin. That's this new life that Jesus has purchased for us. That's what it means to live in the kingdom. So question, do we elevate ourselves by tearing others down? Do we hold all others to standards that we don't even place on ourselves? 
You judge everybody in this room that they should do this, do that, but you won't put that on yourself. Are you committed to the purity of your own soul and the soul of others? Man, that's what it means to be in the kingdom. Jesus is saying, this is, he's going to great pains to show us what it means to be this city on a hill. And, and it's, but it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. I've got just a few more minutes. Hang with me, okay? Just don't let the enemy steal what he might want to speak to us here. But this is what Christ is trying to say to us through this sermon. And on one hand, listen, on one hand, this is absolutely liberating. Because it's not about what we do, right? Like, he, he's much more concerned with us. And that's freeing because when your desires begin to change, listen, obedience becomes a joy. The psalmist David would say, your law is like honey on my lips. Man, th- that is glorious. So Christianity is not just about trying really hard. That's awesome. But on the other hand, when we really get honest, we say, this is also terrifying. Because I can't change my desires. Anybody change your desires? Like, you can't change what you want. So how can we be transformed like this? It'll set you free. It really will. But it's also absolutely terrifying because when we really see what Jesus says is holiness and righteousness, we've got to look and say, I am not that. I may have thought I was doing pretty good because I've kept a decent life, but I'm miserable. Like, I'm a miserable failure. Miserable failure. So we have a couple questions. We can either just mow over it and say, you know what, I'm just going to keep trying to change my behavior. And you never change your heart. That's miserable. Don't do that. Because the next week, guess what? When you mow your yard, it's going to come back. So if you keep mowing over, say, I'm going to try hard, I'm going to do more, it's not going to be lasting change. Or you're going to say, you can say this, what some preachers have called fine-itis. I love it. So somebody asks you how you're doing, what do you say? I'm fine. I'm good. And you never come to grips with how you actually are. And say, no, I don't believe this stuff. No, I'm not being transformed like this. And I'm just playing the church game. But I don't know Jesus. But I'm not going to let you know it. I'm just fine. Guys, it's miserable. It's exhausting to do that. You do not have to clean yourself up. Praise be to God. So stop trying. He's done something much deeper than that. And if we keep pretending, here's, what, what, here's the, the, the stupidity of our sin, is if we're pretending to be something that we could actually, actually become, if we would just stop trying and submit to Jesus. You're pretending to be something. Like you know more about the Bible than you actually do. And if you'll just say, hey, I don't know this. The irony is, is you can actually be transformed to know it. You can actually overcome that sin that you're trying to hide right now. That you haven't joined a life group because you don't want anybody to know what's going on in your heart. If you actually just bring to the light and stop trying to hide it, Jesus says, I've come to transform you from the inside out. But it's only for people who surrender to me. If you keep trying to play the game, you're never going to experience it. So if you'll bow... um, with your head bowed and eyes closed. I, I want, and please do that, nothing magical about it. Um, as the band gets ready, I, I want to um, end the way Jesus ends his sermon. And so we close our eyes just so that we can focus on what he's saying to us, okay? He ends his sermon and says, instead of just trying to act like it's not there, instead of trying to just fix it on your own and try to have this righteousness apart from Jesus, here's what he says. He ends his sermon. He says, listen, there's two roads. One is easy to get on, and the end is destruction. But the other 
is narrow and it's really hard to come to the end of yourself. But if you're on that road, it leads to life. So the question that Jesus asks us is, where are you headed? Like, are you on that road? Like, are you on the road of repentance, self-denial, and a resting in the righteousness of Jesus? Like, do you know that? Are you headed that direction? Or is your life headed toward destruction? Because you refuse to come clean like this. Maybe Jesus also says, hey, there's two trees. One produces fruit naturally. The other doesn't. And, the, and that one tree is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Because it's no good for anything. So Jesus asks us, look at your life. Is your life that tree that's producing this kind of righteousness and this fruit? If it's not, you've got to ask yourself that question. Do I know Jesus? Really? Like, have I been transformed by him in this deep way? And then lastly, he says, there's two houses. They're one, they, listen, they look identical on the outside. Identical. People drive by them all day and say, man, those are two nice looking houses. But the difference is the foundation. He says one's built on the sand and the other is built on a rock. And when the hurricane of, the, of life comes and the judgment of God comes, one will be destroyed because it's built on a sandy, shifting foundation. But the one that was built on the rock will stand safe and secure. So listen, your house might look good on the outside today. And you can fool me and I can fool you. But what Jesus is saying is it matters what you're building your life on. Don't just have this external house that looks nice and cute. Like, what are you building your life on? If it's anything other than Jesus and his righteousness, it will fall. It'll fall today, but what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the people of that day was it's not just that you're going to live a miserable life, although that's true, but the end is destruction. Like, the end of that road leads to hell. That tree will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The house will crumble. And so I don't want to see our lives crumble. I don't want to see us that way. I want us to see us be real and have a community that says, let's be honest about what we're not and let's lean into the righteousness that Jesus has supplied for us. And I never do this, ever. Um, so if you're a guest with us, I never, but I feel impressed by the Spirit of God. If you're here today and you say, Derek, I'm a fake. I don't know that I know Jesus like this. Like, I, I want us to just, just raise your hand. I promise I will not call you out. I just want to know how to pray for you. To say, this is me. Like, I, I don't even know what that means for my next step. But like, this is me. Will you just pray for me? If you'll lift your hand. Thank you for the hands. I see those hands, guys. I see, I see you. Thank you. You can put your hands down. So I'm going to ask you a question. Like, what's keeping you from that? Jesus invites us and says, Come. Like, I'll, I'll change you. You don't have to be this religious person. You can actually experience life if you'll just come to the end of yourself and say, I, I'm not Lord. Jesus, you're Lord. I can't save myself, and I trust that you, what you did on the cross and in the resurrection is salvation for my soul. And today, I choose to repent and believe in you. You can do that right now. You don't have to have anybody lead you in a prayer. You can just do that now. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And if you need to talk to somebody after that, if it's you, you've done that right now, we invite you after the service, come tell us that so we can walk through this with you. And if you're here and you say, I'm not ready to make that decision and that step, but like, I want to know more. I want to talk. I want to wrestle with this. Man, we would love to have that conversation with you as well. 
Don't leave today until you get that settled. But for the rest of us, listen, if you're in Christ, don't hide. Bring it to the light. And let us live as citizens of this kingdom, but be reckless to see the kingdom of God advanced in this city. To invite more people into this kind of lifestyle. Because Jesus is king and he's worth the praise of all people everywhere. So let's just celebrate uh, in song for a little bit. That Man, what an amazing mystery that God's grace would come to me like this. That would save me from all this religion and give me new life. So let's stand and let's sing this song out together.